Hey everybody, welcome to the Game Changer Baseball and Softball Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Yavoli. The Game Changer Podcast is about talking to people who have dedicated their lives to the games of baseball and softball and learning about who they are, how they got to where they are today, and what they do to improve themselves and their teams. You can follow us on Twitter at GC Sports and be sure to check out the Game Changer Baseball and Softball Scorekeeping app. It provides simple, powerful, and free scorekeeping tools with advanced statistics, live updates, and team management solutions that work at any level. The Game Changer Scorekeeping app is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android. You can learn more about Game Changer at gc.com. Today on the show, we have the head coach of Creighton Baseball, Ed Service. Coach Service is a graduate of Wisconsin Lacrosse. After college, he found his first collegiate coaching job as an assistant at St. Mary's in Winona, Minnesota. He then moved on to start the baseball program at Viterbo before returning to St. Mary's as the head coach where he stayed for seven seasons. During his time at St. Mary's, he was named the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference Coach of the Year. He then moved on to his first D1 coaching position at Iowa State in 1996. He stayed for two seasons before serving as an assistant at Creighton from 1998 to 2003. He was then named the head coach at Creighton for the 2004 season. Coach Service is starting his 17th season at Creighton, where he's taken the team to four NCAA tournaments. He's the winningest coach in program history. During his time as head coach, his teams have committed the fewest errors in the nation while leading the country with a 977 fielding percentage. Coach and I got a chance to talk about a lot of things like changing culture, dealing with conflicting philosophies, creating a team identity, and much, much more. Here's my interview with Coach Service. Coach Service, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to get to talk, but uh, but let's get started like I always do. How'd you get started playing baseball? Well, I have a unique background in that I have seven brothers. <laughs> so, you know, as the second to the youngest, um, this is what we did. You know, I, my mom kind of forced us to go outside and play it. And, and uh, you know, baseball is important to my entire family, not just me. So it's kind of uh, something that we became, it became like second nature to us to play a lot as young people. And then the more I played, the more I got you know, excited about playing, the more I enjoyed it, and that's that's how it continued. So, but it all started in the backyard as a young person playing with my older brothers. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, yeah, so you were basically you were pretty much born into the game. You were playing it for as long as you can remember. Yeah, yeah. This is what we did. I mean, my brother. I have another brother that played professionally. That's a scout. You mm-hmm. know, and my nephews the uh, manager of Seattle Mariners. Mm-hmm. So this is what we did. I mean, sports were very important to us. And um, when it was spring and summertime, obviously baseball took um, took over. So right. this is this is what how we entertained ourselves back in those days. Right. <laughs> and did you play any other sports growing up? Yes, I did. You know, I you know, depending upon what season it was, that was my favorite sport. You know, so the fall we loved football, and mm-hmm. we played football through high school, and then in the winter times, uh, basketball became number one priority, and we played basketball through high school, and right. and then you know when the spring and summer came around, baseball became the priority. So right. I would encourage all young people to do it. I I look back at what I did, and I just had a blast uh, 
playing all three sports. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so that, that's what I was going to ask when you do talk to younger kids, you are recommending that they, that they be multi-sport athletes. I strongly, strongly encourage, um, the players and their parents that they should get involved with as many different things as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I think sports, uh, transcend between sports. I think you learn a lot and there may be a sport that you're not quite as good at, but you learn a lot in that situation. Then when you go to the sport that you might be more uh, capable of playing, then you, you can you have compassion for the player that is struggling a little bit in that right. sport because you were that player in the other sports. So right. I just think we're doing way too much specialization, mm-hmm. way too much of that, and I fear that that's not healthy um, for the young people. So I would encourage them to at least play two if they can. Right, right. Makes sense. Yeah, and I think – that's a key point that you brought up is, you know, if you're, if you're playing another sport that you're not necessarily the best at, it helps you develop a perspective from, you know, when you're on another team and you are the best on that team, it, it helps you develop your leadership capabilities as well. I think that's a key point. Um, but, uh, but so let's jump ahead a little bit, um, you know, to your college days. Can you tell us real quickly how you ended up at Wisconsin lacrosse? Well, I, I grew up, that's my hometown. I grew up in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And, um, you know, they had a tremendous athletic program right there in town, not just with baseball, but, but football and basketball. And, you know, back in those days, um, you know, a lot of student athletes would just stay in town, just yeah. stay locally. Um, mm-hmm. Recruitment was much different back in those days. Um, so I never really looked much at other schools. We kind of knew that uh, we were going to go to UW Cross probably when we were freshmen and sophomores in high school, and, and it was a different world back then. You know, right. and we, it wasn't as uh, mobile. You know, I never got out of the state of Wisconsin very right. much until I was in college, and now these young people here—they travel all the time, right. playing their games. So that's how we ended up there. Yeah, and did you, uh, you know, because it was very close to home. I mean, it was, you know, in the, in the same town that you grew up in. Did you feel like there was any transition issues from high school to college or was it just an easy transition for you? Oh, it was hard. Yeah, It was hard uh, just from the standpoint of uh, competing with uh, more physical players, uh, more mature players. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a tough transition. I mean, obviously I knew the town. I was familiar with the program, but uh, I wasn't that familiar with a lot of the players in the program. So anytime you're a freshman at the college level, I don't think it's easy. Right. It's hard. You gotta you gotta make new friends. You gotta find out what that coach likes and dislikes. And then you're playing against men. Mm-hmm. And you're still a young a young guy, you know, seventeen or eighteen years old, and you're going up against twenty two, twenty three year old men. It's gonna take you a while to adjust to that. So uh, yeah, I went through some of those freshman struggles like all players do. Right, right. So when you when you are talking to younger players or maybe um, you know, juniors or seniors in high school who are deciding on what the right school is for them, how do you talk to them? What advice do you give to them uh, you know, when they are thinking through that decision? It's very, very important that you find the right fit. Mm-hmm. You know, that your style of play fits the style of play of that program. Mm-hmm. You know, th- obviously this 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 conversation takes place after the conversation about academics, because academics is still priority number one, especially at a school like ours here at Creighton University. But once we get beyond the academics, I really encourage the players to look past the facilities and look at the coaching staff, who can develop you to become the best player you can. Mm-hmm. And that style that that coach implements 
fit your style as a player. Mm-hmm. And I think too many young players uh, don't look at that. They get mm-hmm. caught up on all the wrong things, facilities, the bells and whistles, mm-hmm. and they get there and they realize, oops, I can't be the, the player I want to become. Right. And then we have this transfer stuff going on way too much, mm-hmm. you know, way too much transferring taking place at our level. Right, right. And so how do you recommend players understand what the what the style of play is going to be at a school? Is it talking to the coaches? Is it talking to the players? Is it watching, you know, game film? What's the best way to do it? If they can, and I know it's very hard to do, go to a practice. Hmm. That's how you really find out about a team. Because on a game, you may not see a lot of things. You see the te- two teams compete against each other. But in a game, you're going to, I mean, in practice, rather, you're going to see a variety of things. You're going to see the organizational skills of the coaches, how they teach, right. how they teach in a progressive manner. Do they break it down with players that actually understand? Um, I strongly, strongly encourage players to get to practice. I know it's hard because they have a busy schedule. Yeah. If they can't get to practice, the next thing would be is to get to a game. Mm-hmm. If they can't get to that, obviously they're going to have several conversations with the coaches and get comfortable and develop relationships with the coaches. But if I had my uh, two cents worth, I would encourage every player to get to a practice or two at the college level mm-hmm. to find out if that's what they're looking for. Gotcha. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so let's let's jump to the start of your coaching career. Um, what made you decide that you wanted to start coaching? Well, when I was in college, you know, you got to figure out what you want to do. You know, <laughs> I, I never really thought much about in high school, you know, what I wanted to do after college. I don't think that's uh, unusual. Right. When I got into college, I realized you know, I got I to pick a major out here, you know. So I went into education mm-hmm. and I thought, okay, this would be cool when my playing days are done. I'll just be a high school teacher and a high school coach. I enjoy coaching football. I enjoy coaching really basketball and baseball. I envisioned myself coaching all three sports in high school, being a teacher, and just doing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then I went and got my educational degree, and uh, that's when I started out. I actually started out as a high school coach. Right. I was a high school coach for two years before I got into the college level. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, this is, um, you know, there, were, there weren't a lot. Business never appealed to me. I, I knew I wanted to kind of get back a little bit. I had a, a tremendous passion for athletics. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to stay in it when my playing days were over with. Right, gotcha, gotcha. And so, um, so you said your first coaching job was actually at the high school level. Can you talk about yes. how you ended up as an assistant at St. Mary's? That was your first collegiate coaching level job, right? Correct. Well, I, I was a high school coach for two years in Northern Wisconsin, and uh, you know I had eleven players on my team. Right. And so it was a very, very small school. <laughs> right. So I really learned a lot about how to be creative, how to organize a practice. I was mm-hmm. the only coach, 11 players. Mm-hmm. And so on. And then after two years of that, I kind of got the itch to do something different. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be fun to work with a more talented, more committed player. So I went back to my hometown, lacrosse, and started working on my master's degree. And I found an ad in a newspaper saying they needed an assistant coach at St. Mary's, hmm. which was 30 miles away from lacrosse. Well, right. my older brother happened to attend St. Mary's. He played baseball at St. Mary's. So I, I do the program well. I play a lot as a collegiate player. And I responded to the ad in the newspaper, a little different than nowadays when people get jobs. Right. Um, and the guy hired me for $1,000. So I became the assistant coach at St. Mary's for the next three years for a thousand dollars, and uh, that led to 
the next few steps in my coaching career. Gotcha. Yeah. So can you talk about that first year at the collegiate level, you know, especially after you said you were, you were coaching a team by yourself, 11 players, and now you move on to the college level um, with a little bit more, you know, committed player. Can you talk about what were the, what were the biggest surprises and what were the biggest lessons from those first years? Well, I was lucky that the coach I worked with under was also the basketball coach at St. Mary's. So the first month, I pretty much had practices by myself. <laughs> so here I am, you know, at, uh, only three or four years, three years older than the players I was working with. Yeah. I'd never coached at the collegiate level before. The head coach was busy with the basketball responsibilities. And uh, it was a great experience for me. Uh, I really had to make sure I was well organized. Um, I had to make a, a, a good first impression on these guys. They looked at me as being like one of them. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be one of them. I wanted to be their coach. And uh, I remember those. And we used to practice at night. We practiced a lot of times at eight o'clock at night. So I remember leading up to those first couple practices, I was pretty anxious. I wanted to make sure I got off to a good start. And you know, I kind of set the tone that okay, guys, I'm not one of you. I'm not a player any longer. Mm-hmm. I'm your coach. This is how we're going to do things. I think I probably went over the top with my organizational part of it. Right. I wanted to make sure that was in play so I could get these guys to buy into what I was doing because, you know, unlike today, I didn't have fall baseball. So here we are in February and we're only a month away from playing and I've got to make an impact with these players. And the head coach, by the way, he's not here today right. because he's with his basketball responsibility. So it was a great learning opportunity for me. And I'm so grateful that I had that because yeah. it was on the job training. Right, right. Yeah, you were basically, you were thrown into the fire right away. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, so I, I, I know we're, we're jumping around a little bit in the timeline, but eventually you ended up at the head, as the head coach at St. Mary's. Um, can you talk about how that, how that came about? Well, I was at um, St. Mary's for three years, mm-hmm. and then in my hometown of La Crosse, Wisconsin, there's a school besides the one I attended called Viterbo College. Mm-hmm. And Viterbo did not have baseball. Hmm. And it was an all-women's school that just turned to, uh, you know, a co-ed. Right. So they only had 170 men on campus. So they thought, hey, in order to attract more men, we have to start baseball. Mm-hmm. Well, I found out about that. So I went into the athletic director's office and said, I understand that you might be interested in starting baseball. He said, yeah. Yeah, we might be in. And I said, well, I'd have an interest in starting the program for you. He goes, well, let me get back to you in a week or so. So he had to run it up the pole, you know, run it to the administration. He found out he could do it. And I became the head baseball coach at Viterbo College. I started the program there. We didn't have a field. We didn't have a baseball. We didn't have a bat. We didn't have uniforms. We had a very small budget. And um, we set out to start this program. And the first year, since we didn't have any players on campus, we didn't play games. So I was recruiting and just, you know, trying to figure out where we would play. And we designed a field right. and made a field. It wasn't, you know, maybe the best field, but we made it. Right. And then the second year, we we started the program at the Turbo, the Turbo College. And believe it or not, we were 23-6 and six that year. So wow. I only was there for one year. But then the head job opened up at St. Mary's. Um, the coach had left. 
I was a little hesitant in, in looking at that job since I'd only been at the Turbo for one year. Right. But I thought it was an opportunity for me because St. Mary's was a much more established program mm -hmm. and had a field and it was in a conference and, you know, had a better budget and so on. So I, I knew the athletic director there very well. So it was a very quick conversation with him, very short interview. Mm -hmm. and he offered me the job and I took it. So um, that's how I got to be the head coach at St. Mary's. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so, uh, you know, to, to jump back a little bit to, uh, Viterbo, it, it sounds like, it sounds like in one aspect with your original job at St. Mary's, you were sort of thrown into the fire as almost a head coach right from the beginning because the head coach was right. off playing basketball. And now you're in a new situation at Viterbo where you are, you're not coaching right away, but you are you're recruiting kids to a school, to a, to a team that doesn't even exist yet. Um, so it's almost like you're right. being thrown to the fire right there. Um, do, do you feel, did that, how much did that help with your, with your recruiting style? Was that, was that your first time really being on the ground and helping with recruiting? Yeah. I mean, I did a little recruiting at St. Mary's, but just mm -hmm. phone calls and stuff. But, you know, back in those days, I used to umpire a lot. So I knew a lot of the local kids, high school kids, because I'd umpire every night. And kind of a funny story is uh, a small community outside of La Crosse, Wisconsin, by the name of West Salem, mm -hmm. had a good catcher. So yeah. when I got the job at Futurbo, I, you know, you got to find pitching, right? So I called this young man up. His name was Damien. I said, Damien, what do you plan on doing next year? He said, well, I'm going to go to school. I said, are you going to play baseball? He said, no, I'm just going to go to school and get my degree. I said, Damien, you're too good not to continue to play baseball. Let's see if we can work this thing out at Futurbo. Yeah. And Viterbo is a private institution with no scholarships. So we had to work hard to get these kids to be able to come there because it was a private institution. So it was more expensive than a public school in town. Well, long story short, this young man came to Viterbo. Hmm. Three years later, he was drafted by the Minnesota Twins. Wow. He played nine years in a big league. He won a World Series ring with the Arizona Diamondbacks. He caught no hitters <laughs> from Randy Johnson. He played all-star games. His name was Damian Miller, a catcher. Miller. He played with the Diamondbacks and the Brewers and the A's, but he made his hay with the Diamondbacks when he played the World Series. That young man doesn't play uh, pro baseball unless the Turbo has that program. Wow. And it's one of the neater stories that I've been a part of in all the years I've been coaching. So That's unbelievable. It's uh, pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's great. That's great. So, um, so jumping back to St. Mary. So now this is your, uh, you know, you, you come back to the school that you were an assistant coach in. Um, how are you? How are you viewing sort of taking over the program? Are you are you setting a new tone, or is it more of a continuation of what it was when you were there as an assistant? No, we're setting a new tone. Um, the head coach, as much as I. We had a great relationship. We were different, very different. Yeah. And uh, that's okay. As the, as the assistant, you do what the head coach wants you to do. You take on his personality a little bit to a certain extent. Right. But I, that's not who I was. So we came in there and we had to change the entire culture of the program. And if you look at the record of the first year at St. Mary's, it wasn't very good. Right. Because it took a whole year for us to change the outlook of the players, the attitude, the preparation, the commitment to the program. And uh, we had to go in there and change it all. And that's what we did. And I said, okay, it may take me a year to get this thing figured out, but I'm, I'm, we're going to do it this way because I felt that way was the best.
best way long term for us to have success. And we went in there and uh, we took our lumps the first year, but it worked out in the long run. Right, right. So I'm curious about that. So you said, you know, the first year um, you felt like you had to work to change the culture a little bit. Can you talk about how you went about doing that? How do you go about working on the culture at a program? Well, we talked about it often, but I had to lay the groundwork down, you know, as far as being on time. I'm a big believer in being on time. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a little bit loose in that area. So, you know, we made a point of it uh, that if we weren't going to be on time, we would miss a practice. Mm-hmm. You'd have to stay at practice, but you couldn't participate. Mm-hmm. It only takes one time for that to happen. Right. And you get the player's attention. Right. And um, we got their attention with that. And the next thing was, you know, how are we going to present ourselves? You know, how are we going to wear our uniforms and stuff? And we mm-hmm. we make our guys wear their uniforms the same way. That's kind of why they call it uniform. You right. know, so that took a while for us to establish that. And then just, I think the thing that uh, worked in our favor more than anything else was just the preparation. I think they were um, surprised at how detailed and prepared we were for practice. Mm-hmm. And that's all athletes want at the end of the day. They just want a way to get better. And if they know that you're all in on that, mm-hmm. and they knew that I was all in on it, it, it didn't take as much um, convincing and coaxing as I thought. Now, mm-hmm. we did take our lumps the first year, and we might have had a guy or two walk away from the program that otherwise might have played with a different situation. But I just was looking at it big picture. I was looking big picture. I might have to sacrifice a year right. for six or seven really good years on the other end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, these little details about showing up on time and making sure you, you guys are all wearing the uniform correctly. To me, that sort of paints a picture as you guys are focused on on discipline. Um, is that correct? And, and and if so, why why is that important for you? Well, I don't think anything good ever happens without it. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, now discipline. Some the problem with discipline when you mention that word to young players, young people. They get kind of nervous. Mm-hmm. They think that you're running a boot camp, or they think that's all you do is run and you run and that stuff. No, discipline is just doing everything right. right. It's just being doing things right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what we tried to do with our guys. I tried to explain to them that don't run away from the word discipline. Don't be scared by that. Right. And people acknowledge you as being a di- disciplined individual. That's a compliment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. um, discipline is not running till you get sick or those kind of things. No, discipline is just doing everything right, right. all the time. Right. And that was, because I, I wanted our guys not only to be good in the, on the field, I wanted to be good in the classroom and in, in, the, in the community too. And mm-hmm. and I, I know as college guys, that sometimes can be a challenge, but that was important to me. And you know, we would talk about it almost on a daily basis because mm. I didn't want them to fear discipline. I think discipline is the common denominator of all successful people. Right. And I want our guys to be successful. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you mentioned when you when you develop this new discipline between the team, you were looking long term. So that first year, you took some lumps and even lost some players. But d- does that did you view that almost as you know, sort of trimming the fat a little bit? You know, calling calling the team a little bit to make sure that you're getting the right players on your on your team. Well, you know, I I, I never wanted to lose a player. That I never set out to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the players had to make that decision. That's right. not the the reason I do what I do. It, it hurts every time we do lose a player when a player walks away because he feels like he can't do what right. we need to do. But it, but on the other end, I think 
it, it it's it's part of when you when you go into a program and you try to establish what's what you you know your personality and how you like things done, you're going to have a little bit of that. I don't know too many coaches that don't go into a new program and have a little bit of turnover and have a little bit of maybe it, it takes a while to get everything established and get get your footing down. Um, right. But the, I, I never wanted to lose a player, but I, mm-hmm. I realized that the likelihood of that happening was probably pretty high because I was a lot different than the previous head coach. And that right. doesn't mean he wasn't good at what he did. But I wanted to establish what I thought would give us the best chance to be successful. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so talk about how after St. Mary's, um, the assistant position at Iowa became available. Well, it was at Iowa State. Iowa and State. Iowa State Sorry. used to have baseball back in those days. I know a lot of folks don't think of that because it's been a while. But mm-hmm. um, after being at St. Mary's for seven years, I started to get that same itch I had when I was a high school coach. I wanted something different. I wanted something more. I wanted maybe uh, you know to, to taste Division One baseball. Could mm-hmm. I do it at that level? It was always at the back of my mind. Could I do it? Mm-hmm. Will this philosophy work at the next level? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I caught a break because the Iowa State situation opened up at semester time. The head coach at Iowa State left in October to become the head coach at Kansas. Hmm. The assistant coach at Iowa State, on an interim basis, got promoted to the head coach. Hmm. Well, he needed an assistant coach. Right. So I called wind of that, and I applied. And I had some people call on my behalf, some scouts who had seen our program. And I got an interview, mm-hmm. you know, and I went down there in the first part of December and interviewed down there. I remember driving from uh, uh, Winona, Minnesota to Ames, Iowa in an ice storm. Mm-hmm. And I probably shouldn't have driven. I should, it was really not a <laughs> smart move on my part. Right. And, but I wanted to get there and I didn't mm-hmm. want to be late. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I'm a big believer in being on time and, and I know it was a it was a white knuckler all the way down there. It's normally about a three and a half hour drive. It probably took us six hours. Wow! And it was a bad ice storm, a really bad storm. But I got there, and we had a good visit for uh, about a day and a half. Mm-hmm. And then I came back, and then a week later, he offered me a job, and I started my first day at December twenty seventh, huh. two days after Christmas. Right. And that was another interesting challenge because now I'm meeting a new group of guys who had been together in the fall, who didn't know me, and I didn't know them, and that created another interesting, interesting challenge for me to see if we could um, integrate what we like to do with a bunch of new guys, and now it's back to being an assistant coach again, which is an entirely different thing than being a guy who calls his own shots. Right, right. And and so I'm curious, did you, you know, as you're making that move from head coach to assistant at the D1 level, are you, are you thinking about it in the same way? Uh, are, like, are, are, were you making sure that that head coach has the same philosophy as you do? Were you making sure that there was a fit? I probably didn't do as good a job with that, to be yeah. honest. Mm-hmm. I was so, so excited about having the opportunity to uh, be an assistant coach at Division One level, the Big Eight Conference. Back in those days, it was the Big Eight. Right, right. And, um, and. Um, I probably didn't investigate that as much. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't go for a salary increase. My salary was the same. I mean, I yeah. left St. Mary's and became assistant at, at, at Iowa State. Same mm-hmm. salary. So that was not the reason at all. I was just so excited for the opportunity to see if my philosophy 
could work with even a more gifted player. Mm-hmm. And I probably didn't investigate enough about what the philosophy of the head coach was. Right. And, um, and it was, a it was really a hard, hard year and a half for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt guilty leaving my St. Mary's athletes at semester time. Right. I never went away. I just didn't feel good about it. Mm-hmm. Even though they were fine with it, I just felt terrible that I didn't commit the entire year to them. But I knew that this opportunity may not be there again. Mm-hmm. So I felt I needed to do it. Right, right. And so and so looking back, you know, outside of any guilt that he might have felt, looking back to you, would you recommend, was that something that you wish you had done? Maybe put a little bit of research into, you know, what sort of head coach you were going to be working with. Um, and is that something that you would recommend to assistant coaches that are maybe making a similar move that they should look to see the philosophy of, of the, the coach that they're going to be working with? Absolutely. It's no different than a player. Yeah. A player has to find his fit into a program. A coach needs to find his fit into a program. Right. Um, I was naive. Uh, I got caught up in the glitter of having the opportunity to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a hard time because our philosophies were not the same. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was fortunate enough not to stay there very long because right. I thought it wasn't healthy for the players to have two different philosophies coming at them. Hmm. in practice it's not it's not fair to the players and i always look at the players as being the reason why we do this and i don't Mm -hmm. want to put them in a tough situation but yeah i would encourage all coaches who are bouncing around and looking for different jobs and stuff that you have to match up with um not entirely i mean your personalities might be different but your philosophies and how to teach Mm -hmm. and how to move players from point a to point b has to be somewhat similar right and if it's not then you're going to really um that enjoy your experience. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. So, so can you tell us next how you, um, it looks like after two years at Iowa state, can you tell us how you ended up at Creighton? Well, it was my, so I was at Iowa state for a year and a half because we started mm-hmm. in December. And then, um, my nephew, Scott, who's now currently the manager for the Seattle Mariners mm-hmm. was a player at Creighton. Mm-hmm. So I had some connections with Creighton. Well, the head coach at Creighton and Scott were roommates in college. Hmm. And the head coach at the time, Jack Dom, was a former player at Creighton. So Jack would hear Scott talk about me a little bit when they'd have their conversations about baseball and philosophies and why you do certain things. And so when Jack had a job opening, he called me Hmm. and said, would you have an interest in coming over? I said, well, Jack, I just bought a house in Ames, Iowa, my wife's a teacher. My kids, I had a, I had an eighth grader at the time, a daughter. I said, man, it's, it's going to be hard. That's a tough one. As yeah. much as I want to, I don't know. Well, he talked me into it. I came to Omaha to work at Creighton my first year as mm-hmm. the assistant. And my family stayed back in Ames. Oh, wow. Because I wanted my daughter, I wanted my daughter to finish eighth grade. I wanted my wife to finish, you know, it was right about this time of year. It was the middle of August. And um, I wanted her to, you know, start her school year and finish her school year. So I came to Omaha on my own, and they mm-hmm. stayed behind. So that's right. another thing that, you know, sacrifice that we as a family made right. to get to this position. And, you know, and you probably noticed one theme in this whole conversation we've had is there's been a ton of sacrifices made yeah, for sure. by my family to allow me to get to this position. It's not just 
as easy as it might look when you see coaches out there coaching on game day. There's a lot of stuff that goes on mm-hmm. for those folks to get to that position. So, right. so I decided after about a week that I would uh, resign my position at Iowa State and come to Creighton as the uh, as the assistant coach. Yeah, you were the and you were the hitting and first base coach. Is that correct? Yeah, I coached some third too. Uh, occasionally, yeah. I, I think a couple of years I coached third, but probably the majority of the time I coached first. Right. I worked with the hitters, and then I worked with the infielders as well. Gotcha. And did uh, did the head coach reach out to you? Do you think that was in part because your philosophies aligned? Yeah, I think so. And I think yeah. he trusted my nephew, Scott. They had a good relationship. Right. Uh, Scott was a very good player here at Creighton. Mm-hmm. I think he thought, okay, you know, Ed's probably got a pretty good idea of, of what he's doing. Uh, we actually played each other that year. Iowa State played Creighton in a game in the springtime. Hmm. I think he noticed that you know some things were happening at Iowa State that were might maybe a little different than previous years that he had when he had played Iowa State. So right. it wasn't a very tough conversation. I mean, he basically offered me the job on the phone without even an interview. Huh. <laughs> and um, then I came to Omaha to speak with him and uh, several other people, and then realized that as much as I didn't want to do this again, I don't like moving. I don't like uprooting my family. That. Mm-hmm. Long term, this is probably what I had to do right. because the uh, philosophy at Iowa State was not working for the players. Right. right. Makes sense. Makes sense. And then, so can you talk about um, how the head coaching position came about? So you started at uh, Creighton in uh, 1998, correct? Yeah. And, yep. and then um, probably would have been 97, but uh, I was here for six years. I really didn't look for any jobs. I like Omaha. Uh, my wife's got a teaching job, so that worked out. The whole family came over a year two. My daughter's now in high school. My son's in junior high. I got a younger son that's in grade school. So everybody seems to be slowly but surely kind of settling into Omaha. Right. So we said, okay, we're just going to, we're going to stay here and we're not going to uproot the kids any longer. It's just not, it's not healthy for them. And, mm-hmm. And then the head coach, Jack Dom, after six years, left to become the head coach at Iowa. Right. And then I had to make another decision. Do I go with him to Iowa or do I stay back? And I was named the interim head coach here for about six weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's not a very comfortable tag to have. You know, you don't, right. no one wants to be interim, you know. Right. And I had many discussions with the athletic director saying, I can't recruit with an interim tag. Right. And we're either going to have to make this decision or not. Because if, if, um, if you want to hire somebody differently, then I might, might end up going to Iowa City and go to Iowa, mm-hmm. uh, with, with my, my, you know, the head coach that was, yeah. that I worked with for six years. So after about six weeks, he removed the interim tag hmm. and then, you know, we got our chance. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and so was it a, was it a similar situation as St. Mary's? Did you feel like there was, you know, did you feel like there needed to be a culture change or anything like that? Or was it more of a continuation because you and the previous head coach had a similar philosophy? Well, we got along great. The, yeah. the uh, head coach and myself got along great, but we are two different guys and anybody mm-hmm. who's been around us realizes that. So there was a change. Mm-hmm. in the culture, a lot right. more accountability, a lot more details, mm-hmm. um, a lot more intensity, a lot more, you know, um, energy put into development of the players. 
Right. But it, it was a little easier transition than the one at St. Mary's. I mean, we had we had more success right away. Mm-hmm. And when you have success, it's a lot easier. The, the players will listen to you more. They'll buy in a little bit easier. Right. The St. Mary's one was a whole year. This yeah. one was basically a fall. And that's mm-hmm. the difference between the two programs. Division three at that time when I was at St. Mary's did not have fall baseball. Right. Here we had the fall to kind of work out all those kinks. Yeah. And, um, that's what we did, and we gotcha. ended up having a, a really good year that first year. Gotcha, gotcha. And so I, I want to ask you about you know what the values and principles are at Creighton, but I, I before we get to that, I want to ask about you specifically. You know, something that you've mentioned a few times is your coaching philosophy, and I just wonder if before we start talking about Creighton baseball, if you can talk about what you consider to be your coaching philosophy. I think we developed a brand. It was very important to me that we develop a brand at Creighton. So when people heard of Creighton baseball, they knew exactly what they were going to get. The names might change. The type of players may change. But they knew that when you played Creighton, this is what you were going to see. Right. Uh, you know, we're a very structured, disciplined program. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, preparation is, is very important to us. Uh, how we present ourselves is very important to us. I tell our players all the time, Every time we play, every time we practice, that's a job interview. Right. You know, because you never know who's in the stands. You never know who's observing. You never know how this is going to work out, what's going to lead to the next thing. But, um, and then as far as the actual game itself, we're, we're a team that puts a heavy, heavy emphasis on defense. Mm-hmm. No one's committed fewer errors in the country over the last 16 years than we have. There's right. 299 Division One teams in the country. Right. And when you combine the 16 years I've been the head coach, nobody's committed fewer errors. Right. I wanted to create that identity. The next thing is I wanted to create an identity based on our pitchers are not necessarily going to be swinging this pitchers, mm-hmm. but they're going to be pitchers that throw a lot of strikes and we play a fast game. We like to play fast here. Mm-hmm. We, like the, we like our games to be two hours and 15 minutes, if at all possible. And mm-hmm. We used to play a lot of games under two minutes years ago, or mm-hmm. two hours rather, not two minutes, but two hours. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And um, so that's, and then an offense that could execute the game, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean by that, which means if there's a bunt situation in the eighth inning, that your team can bunt. If there's an opportunity to hit and run in the third or fourth inning, that you guys can control the barrel and hit and run, mm-hmm. and those kind of things. So that so if you were to ask people who have played us, and maybe sometimes people who haven't even played us, that's what they would tell you, that you're going you're gonna to see a very disciplined, structured team that puts a heavy emphasis on defense, Mm-hmm. That plays together in a team concept. Pitchers right. are going to throw it over the plate, and hitters are going to be alleged to the situation, whatever the situation is. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to beat themselves. You know, right. they're going to force you as the other team to beat them. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think it's taken us a while, but I think that's our brand out there. Right. And it's one that you know I, I'm I'm real proud of. Right. And so, how do you? How do you work on making sure that your team embodies those, that brand, you know, those values and principles that you set out for the team, which sounds like it comes directly from the top? Well, we start with the first meeting, you know, that we have in the fall. We have what we call a blue book. And in the blue book, we have our policies and procedures and everything that we anticipate, everything from what our expectations are in the classroom, mm-hmm. what our expectations are in the community, what our expectations are on the field. Everything is in that blue book. And something that we discuss not just once. You know, right. I think a lot of us make a mistake and we discuss something one time with players and then we feel like it's going to resonate with them and stay with them. No, this is a constant reminder of this is how we're going to 
this is how we're going to respond and this is how we're going to present ourselves. Hmm. And our guys have done a tremendous job here in the classroom. You know, last semester, for example, we had a 3.22 GPA. Mm-hmm. You know, our guys graduate, they do a good job in the classroom, and oh, by the way, they play at a pretty high level on the field as well. So right. um, it's not just, it's something that we kind of just remind them of. I know sometimes they probably think it's too much reminding, mm-hmm. but we right. constantly talk about, you know, doing things right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we're just going to do things right. And um, it's very important that you keep in mind, you know, that everything that you do, how it affects your family, how it affects you as an individual, how it affects our program and our institution. Right. And if it's going to be in a positive way, then do it. Mm-hmm. If it's going to be in a negative way, then you got to think twice about it. Right, you know, and, right, for sure. And for the most part, our guys have done a tremendous job in that area. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious about that blue book. Um, it sounds like everybody in your program gets it. Does that yes. blue book, is it, it, has it been a constant over the years, or is it something that evolves year in and year out? Well, it changes slightly, but mm-hmm. I would say 90% of it's been true since the first day I put it out as the, as the head coach here at Creighton. Right. Um, we used to have it at St. Mary's as well. I just don't think, I don't want to have a lot of gray matter. Mm-hmm. I think when there's a gray area, there's a chance that something bad's going to happen. Right. And we've been able to avoid a lot of the things that we hear. It bothers me, to be honest with you, that we kind of hear a lot of these negative things about college athletics. Mm-hmm. And I'm on a mission to make sure that I can do my part to make sure it doesn't happen to our players and our and our young people because I I understand the importance of athletics. Not every one of my guys is going to play professionally. Not every one of my guys is going to be in the big leagues. But I think there's a lot of a lot of things that they're learning mm-hmm. in baseball that they, that they can carry over. And I'm so right. fortunate. My classroom. I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. I don't even like to be called a coach. I'm a teacher. And my classroom happens to be outside. Right. And that's uh, that's pretty cool in my mind. Right. Right. Yeah. For sure. For sure. So uh, I'm curious. What can you talk about? When the blue book does change or evolve or whatever you want to call it, what, um, why does it change and, and, and when does it change? Can you give us an example? Well, for example, like music. Music has changed a lot the last several years. Mm-hmm. So when I – and the guys play music in the locker room, and that's fine. I want them to. You know, right. it's great. But now i got to put something in there about the language of the music, mm-hmm. the content of the music, right. because I don't think that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to sign off on it. So if mm-hmm. I hear that kind of music, you know, I'll tell the players, hey, no, that's not the kind of song. And they know, you know, right. I don't have to bark at them. They'll, they'll switch. Right. So I thought, you know what? I got to put that in the blue book. So that's right. something that I put in the blue book this year. You gotcha. know, we all, um, you know, the hazing situation. I mm-hmm. put that in the blue book probably three, four years ago because mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that our upperclassmen didn't treat the new players with anything but respect. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a program built on respect. I, I have a ton of respect for our players. In return, I want them to have a ton of respect for each other and a ton of respect for the coaching staff. So um, just little things like that. But the, the latest addition has been the, the, uh, the music and just the content mm-hmm. and the, um, the language. I think we've got to be careful. Gotcha. Makes sense. Makes sense. And, and I wonder if you could, um, you know, maybe get a little bit more specific. You mentioned, um, you know, some of the things that – People have been saying about college athletics um, and the negative side of things. Can you talk about what you mean by that? I mean, you know, you mentioned hazing and, you know, maybe some negative music, but are, are, are you talking about, you know, maybe excessive partying or what are some of the negative things that I'm, you're I'm, trying to I'm avoid? I'm talking a lot about academics, gotcha. academics that, that mm-hmm. these are jacks. They don't care about school. 
Right. Um, they get special treatment in classes. They don't have to do the same work as the regular students have to. Mm-hmm. That bothers me because right. our guys do here. Right. And one of the things we put in the blue book is that I will do everything in my power to make this a good experience for you academically, mm-hmm. but I will not call your instructors. Mm-hmm. I will not in any way influence your instructors in giving you a certain grade. Mm-hmm. But in a, on the other hand, we will have tutors available for you. Right. We will have uh, uh, our academic advisors available for you. And I get information from the academic advisors every other week on how our players are doing. Hmm. And then I said, it, it doesn't go to your assistant coaches, it goes to me. And then we will try to put out any little fires that occur. So the, the part that bothers me a lot about is this kind of this, um, this false narrative about athletes aren't good students and they right. get special treatment and they have all these people helping them do their work for them, take their tests for them, things like mm-hmm. that. Right. And that is not going to happen on my watch. Right. And I, I think we got to do a better job of cleaning that up. As far right. as the partying goes, you know, we have some stipulations for that too. You know, we, mm-hmm. we're, we're kind of old school when it comes to some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I and I talk to the players about alcohol a lot, mm-hmm. and some of the things that happen when you're, you know, when you drink alcohol. And to try to, I, I think the good good thing about this uh, generation of young people is they're really smart when it comes to right. some of these things. And I think they just need to be reminded, and they need to just be educated. So, right. I. I um, you know, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes too, but I'm trying to avoid the big mistake with these young people. I think alcohol is a is an area that leads to a lot of other problems. Right, right. Well, I mean, it sounds like it sounds like one you're doing you're doing the right thing by setting the expectation, but you're also putting a lot of trust in your players as well, which will make it easier for them to sort of return the favor. Well, the best teams you have are when the they when the players place themselves. Right. And we're, like last year, we had a tremendous season. Mm-hmm. We had zero drama. Players took care of any little problems that might have occurred. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, we didn't have any big ones, but any small ones. But we've had teams, too, where they've relied on me to do all of that. Mm-hmm. And those teams aren't quite as strong. Right. So the strongest teams, the best teams we've ever had here, are the ones that are led by the players and not by the coaches. And my right. responsibility is to try to help them and kind of teach them how to lead, and then right. cut them loose and trust that they can do it. Yep. I, I trust our players to the moment they walk on campus. The only way they lose my trust is if they make just a really, really bad decision. Thankfully, right. it hasn't happened very often. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and so, and, and fi- final question on the blue book. Um, but uh, but it, it, so it also sounds like what you're saying is it's not just, you know, a set of rules or guidelines that they have to follow, but it's also your setting um for the players, what they can expect from you as the coach as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's half of it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and as long as you get it out there and everybody knows what everybody's expectations are, mm-hmm. I think you can have a, a great experience. At the end of the day, I want our players to have the greatest experience mm-hmm. to their life to this point. They're going to have some other great experiences later on, obviously, but right. I want them to have a great great experience. And I don't think you can unless you have some expectations. And I think players, I, what I've learned over the years is they'll do what you ask them to do. So if you have high expectations, they're going to they're gonna have them. If your expectations are, hey, let's just be average. Right. I've never been interested in just being average. I didn't get into this coaching stuff to be average. That doesn't mm-hmm. interest me for two moments. So right. I don't want our players to buy into that average stuff either. And 
is it easy some days? No, it's mm-hmm. not easy. It's not easy for me some days. It's not easy for them some days. But in the long run, um, they're going to be they're going to have a good experience and they're going to be successful. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so uh, I wondered if we can talk a little bit about your practices. Can you walk us through what a typical in-season practice is like for you guys? Sure. Sure. It usually lasts about two hours and 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very fast practice, well, well organized. The practice plan is, is uh, posted outside the locker room, usually about two hours in advance. Mm-hmm. And I, I encourage the players to look at practice so they know exactly how we're going to have it. Because I believe in continuity and, and uh, your practice, they have a lot of a uh, pace to it. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we obviously stretch. It's a team stretch. It's not they stretch on their own. Practice starts when we stretch. Mm-hmm. And I believe in setting the tone for practice, so I lead the stretching program. I lead it, and I kind of set the tone right there. And then as we're stretching, I might talk about some things we want to accomplish that day, maybe one or two things that we didn't do well the day before as we stretch and it's a dynamic stretching program. So there's a lot of movement and the players are kind of, you know, sweating a little bit at the end of this because we're going to go right from stretching to base running mm-hmm. and base running. We work on it every day in practice home to first. It's a major pet peeve of mine, how players pull up at first base when they know they don't have a base hit right. and how they jog down the line when they hit a ground ball to the infielders. There's no time for that in college baseball. These guys mm-hmm. can run hard at first. So we practice that every day. And then there's one other base running concept that we'll work on. In the, in my, it's a different concept every day, but we'll do one. So we spend about five to eight minutes on base running. It's, mm-hmm. Our stretching program takes us about 12 minutes. From there, we go to a throwing program. And we have a throwing program. We just don't let the players play catch. It's a structured throwing program. It's a, it's a program built on progressions. Mm-hmm. And... Because in my opinion, the thing that's lacking most in our game, skill-wise, is throwing. Now, we can throw hard nowadays, but we can't throw accurately and we can't throw with a quick arm with quick arm action that I want our position players to. So we work on a throwing program, mm-hmm. and that takes about 10, 12 minutes. And then after the throwing program, we go into what we call our team defensive segment. Mm-hmm. And there we work on, you know, like three to five times a week, we'll work on rundowns. You know, bunt defense, cuts and relays, pickoffs, first and third defenses, and those kind of things. We usually devote about 20 to 25 minutes to team defense. Mm -hmm. After team defense, we go to individual defense. And this is where the coach is now. The catching coach works with those guys. I work with the infielders. Pitching coach works with the pitchers. And then our outfield coach works with the outfielders. We normally devote about 20 minutes to individual defense. And then we normally have in between 40 to 15 minutes. 40 to 50 minutes of um, offensive work. Mm-hmm. And normally our hitting is involved in stations. We normally have about six stations. It's one of them being live on the field. You know, some mm-hmm. day we're, throwing, we're hitting off a BP, some day we're hitting off machines. Right. And, and, um, and, then that, and then we wrap it up. I usually talk to them for three or four minutes, just remind them a little bit about academics, some of the mm-hmm. other things that may be going on, and then that's the conclusion. So that's usually right. about a two-hour and 15-minute practice. Gotcha. So it sounds like it sounds like each practice is broken down into segments, but you as the yeah. coach and the assistant coaches, you're you're figuring out what those segments are going to be, what specific things you're going to be working on in the defensive segment or in the offensive segment or in the running right. segment. Gotcha. Yeah, um, I, I do about three fourths of it, and then our, our hitting coach he 
he kind of designs what he wants to do with the hitters. But I encourage our coaches to try to do as much individual planning as we can. Because mm-hmm. you know, let's say if you're working with 14 hitters, you've got 14 different swing paths. You've got 14 different ways of doing it. Right. And you want to kind of work with each individual. So as much as we can, mm-hmm. we try to make it, especially in the individual part, we try to break down what this particular player needs and then build our practice plan around that. Gotcha. Makes sense. Makes sense. And so, uh, so one question I have for you is, you know, uh, you mentioned a couple times during the interview that you like to do things fast. Can you talk about why is that a, is that a value for you or why is that important? Um, why do you feel like it's important for everything your team does to be, you know, doing it fast? Well, here's the problem. And we get disappointed sometimes with our players when they don't excel in games. Mm-hmm. Well, the game's fast. Right. So if you practice slow, mm-hmm. if you practice slow and very methodical with no energy, with no intensity, mm-hmm. and then two nights later, you expect them to play fast with intensity, mm-hmm. they're not going to be able to do it. It's just, it, I tell our players all the time, it's as if we don't practice that. So we got to mm-hmm. practice somehow. We got to simulate the speed of the game, the intensity of the game. And it's impossible to do it quite to that level. But we're going to do everything we can to try to simulate that. Right. And what we do now is we practice slow and we play fast. And I'm trying to I'm trying to practice fast so that the game slows down. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to anybody who's been around baseball, let's say a pro player, and they always say, "What's the difference between A ball and double A? Well, speed of the game." Right. I'm going. Right. What do you mean by that? It's not the speed of the pitchers. Mm-hmm. It's the speed of the game. The runners are faster. The ball comes off the bat faster because the athletes are stronger, maybe a little bit older. Mm-hmm. So I've got to get our players to play and practice with speed so that the game slows down. That right. is my philosophy on practice. We're going to practice fast so the game slows down. Gotcha. Yeah, so so if anything, you're trying to practice as fast and sometimes even faster than Absolutely. the pace of the game. Gotcha. Absolutely. And I put a clock on, you know, when I hit ground balls through infielders, as much as I can, we put a stopwatch on it because a stopwatch is a great motivator and right. it forces those players to play fast. So, like, when I hit a routine ground ball, the guys would say, okay, we want to get it there in 3.9 seconds or less. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's not a good play. Well, very few runners at the college level run down between home and the first and 3.9. So I'm getting them to play faster than they will when they play the game. And I right. think that's the secret of practice. I think that's the secret of why we play really well defensively. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, a lot to do with some of the success that we've had. Gotcha. Makes sense. Um, so I want to talk real quickly before I let you go um, about your viewpoint on recruiting um, for any young players or maybe parents that might be listening to the conversation. Um, so in your mind, what's the best way for a player to stand out? You know, if they 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 want to play baseball at the next level, how do they get noticed? How do they get on your radar? Well, first of all, when they play their games, um, I think sometimes they think how you get noticed is if you hit two home runs and you know a double and stuff like that. Hey, trust me, that's great. Right. And I root for all players when I go watch them play, but I want to see players play with effort. I want to see players play with joy because in baseball, in college, you're now going to devote a lot more time to your game than you did in high school. And mm-hmm. if you don't like what you're doing, right. it's going to be a tough one for you. Now, if you right. truly like what you're doing, you can do anything that coach wants you to do. If you have mm-hmm. a passion for playing. So I want to see young people play with a passion and a mm-hmm. joy that I don't see enough. 
The next thing I want to see is how they throw. So I try to get to the game early. I try to watch them take, you know, infield. And I always try to pick out who the best throwers are because mm-hmm. those usually are the best players. Hmm. I'm not saying hard throwers. I'm just saying guys that throw with the right arm. Right. And, and uh, cause that's a big part of what we try to do here. Mm-hmm. As far as how the players should get on the radar, I think sending video is a good way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just would caution parents and players, don't get so worried about um, making a commitment when you're a freshman in high school right. or when you're 15 years old. You know that there's going to be people out there. There's going to be a lot of schools out there. Be patient, be thorough mm-hmm. in gathering your information. Don't make don't make decisions based strictly on the conference that the team is in or the facilities that they have. Right. And, and look at who can develop you become the best player you can be mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of great coaches out there that are not even nobody knows about that are great at developing players and right. I would encourage parents and players to do that you know put their put their private eye hat on and, and investigate this stuff <laughs> as thoroughly as you can because right. uh, we're, we're having some kids transfer right now and too many kids are getting hurt mm-hmm. because coaches are decommitting their their uh, uh, scholarships when they're seniors, when they committed to the school for two years already. So right. I don't I don't feel good about that. I don't feel good about that at all. So right. it's hard not to get noticed nowadays. It's not mm-hmm. like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. You, between scouts recommending and going to showcases and going to camps on campus and playing baseball with your team, whether it's a Legion ball or, or your high school team, it is impossible not to get noticed. Because mm-hmm. of word of mouth and the internet and stuff, it's going to get your word out there. So, but you right. got to play the right way, in my opinion. You know, mm-hmm. and I think we kind of put too much emphasis on on numbers right now. You know, how hard do I throw? What's my exit velocity? What's my bat speed? Those kind of things. And that's good as far mm-hmm. as a learning tool, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be a great baseball player. Right. And at our place, we want to recruit baseball players. Mm-hmm. I don't want to recruit showcase players. I want to recruit baseball players. Right. And that's what right. we try to do. And so, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, sending a video will help. What, what's the, what's the right sort of video for them to send you so that you can see that these guys are, um, yeah. you know, that you're recruiting baseball players is a highlight reel, full game. What do you like to see? Well, I mean, let's say if they're a position player, you know, maybe, maybe 10 or 15 swings. Mm-hmm. And if it's just BP, that's fine. Because we're just looking at swing path, and we're just trying to judge as best we can. Can that man hit velocity? Can that young uh, man hit velocity? Because in order to be literally at this level and beyond, you've got to first handle velocity. Right. And if your bat path, your swing path is not going to allow you to hit velocity, you're probably going to have a hard time. And you can tell that even with a uh, with a young man taking BP off a BP pitcher throwing 60 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. If he's an infielder, obviously I want to see him feel some ground ball. I want to check his feet out a little bit. I want to check his arm action. Does he have a sh- shorter arm action than the midfielder should? Is he kind of a winder upper? If he is, maybe he's got to go to the outfield. Right. You know, but I just want to see his feet. I want to see, is he light on his, going to be athletic? The good thing I like about our game, and, and I think the bat and the ball have changed it over the last five or six years, is we have more athletes playing baseball now than ever before. We used mm-hmm. to get kind of one-dimensional players, guys that could just hit home runs. Right. But they 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 couldn't do a lot of other things. And now that's a rarity at our level. We see more athletes playing and I am so fired up about that because it's right. it's more it's easier to watch an athlete play. Mm-hmm. So 
I'm looking for any signs that this player might be athletic. Right. So I, I see that a lot when they take ground balls and so on. So I would have them in if they're a pitcher, you know, I, you know, throw a bullpen. I know a lot of folks put like a gun reading on that. Mm-hmm. To me, it's more, we just want to check your arm swing. We want to see if that arm swing is going to allow you to stay healthy as a player because sometimes these kids don't throw right. Right. And then you're looking at him going, gosh, we think he's probably going to break down in a year or two. Right. Because his arm's just not going to hold up with that arm action. So we're looking at mainly arm action. And you got to project. you got to put your projection hat on. Mm-hmm. And how's this player going to look two years from now, three years from now when he gets here? Mm-hmm. That's the tough one. I don't think right. anybody's figured that one out entirely. That's a hard one. Right, for, for sure, for sure. Um, so when you think back to you know some of the best players that you've coached, can you think about what's one attribute that you think is most common in the best players you've coached? Work ethic. Hmm. They all have that work ethic. Hmm. They all have that extra little drive in their belly. I never had to motivate them. I never had to prod them to do this and do that. Hmm. Sometimes I had to tell them not to work as hard because their body was going to break down. Sometimes hmm. I'd say, hey, you need, to, you need to have a little bit more rest here. You know, because right. you've got, you got a big weekend coming up. I want you to pull back a little bit. That's the common denominator with all the great players at that. We've got 27 players currently playing professional baseball. So we have a lot. And there's one thing, they're all different sizes. Some guys are 6'3", other guys are 5'9", some weigh 225, other guys weigh 170. But the common denominator is they have a work ethic that is way off the charts. It's not normal. It's not normal to be a hard worker. Mm -hmm. And then they also have a passion and joy for playing. They really like to play baseball. It's not like, oh, I got to go to practice today. Oh, I got to play all night. They used to be disappointed when we got rained out. I mean, I'd have to walk them off the ledge some nights when we got rained right. out because they <laughs> wanted to play so bad. So right. I think that's, you notice I haven't even talked much about skill set. Mm-hmm. I think the skill set is, is uh, down the line a little bit. I think mm-hmm. work ethic and, and passion and joy for playing are far right. superior over skill sets in my mind. Right, right. Yeah, you have uh, that work ethic and the passion and joy. That skill, that skill set's going to come down the line. Yes, it will. Right, right. Um, well, listen, Code Service, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, but there's been one question I've asked everybody who's come on the show. Um, sure. What are three things everyone should be doing every day to get better at whatever it is they do? It doesn't have to just be baseball. Well, have a joy and a passion for what you do. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, wake up every day um, understanding that, you know, whatever you do, that you're going to be passionate and, and uh, joyful about it. Respect mm-hmm. everybody. Mm-hmm. Respect everybody. You may not agree with everybody. I don't even like the word like. If it was up mm-hmm. to me, we'd eliminate that word from the dictionary. Right. Um, respect. Respect everybody who's with you, who's around you, who works with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't don't treat anybody differently because they may have a what I call a fat wallet. You know, it doesn't mean you treat that person <laughs> any differently than the other person. You know, treat right. everybody the same, respect everybody the same. Mm-hmm. And then you know, don't take anything for granted. Don't assume anything. You know, uh, all we have is today for sure. And uh, right. we hear we hear these horror stories all the time about you know people getting sick and this happening and that happening. And just uh, enjoy. Um, Enjoy the opportunity that you have right. today. Enjoy it. Yeah. So awesome, Coach. Um, listen, I appreciate you taking the time. We actually went a little over time. Um, thank you so much for coming on. This was really a great conversation. 
You bet. I hope it helps, and uh, thanks for having me, okay? Thanks for listening to the Game Changer Baseball and Softball Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Yavoli. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joe Yavoli. If you like the podcast, please take a second to give a positive review on iTunes. This makes it easier for more coaches, parents, and players to find the podcast. And make sure to check out the free Game Changer Baseball and Softball Scorekeeping app to get advanced statistics, live updates, and team management solutions for baseball and softball teams at any level. You can learn more at GC.com. Until next time, keep working and keep getting better.